0: Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Vox Tablet. I'm your host, Sarah Ivory. Today, hope and the Holocaust.
1: Jesus was a Jew, but I'm the Jewish Jesus.
0: That's Shalom Auslander saying words uttered by Anne Frank, as Shalom has conceived of her in his new novel, Hope, a Tragedy. The book imagines that Anne Frank didn't die at Bergen-Belsen, but that she lived on for decades, hiding in attics throughout Europe and then in the United States. Here in the United States, she winds up in the home of a guy named Solomon Kugel. Besides having to deal with Anne Frank in his attic, Kugel also has to deal with his mother. She's moved in with him and his wife. And his mother, who was born in Brooklyn in 1945, is convinced that she is herself a survivor. She's obsessed with the Holocaust. All of these goings-on make for some highly entertaining, if not a little disconcerting reading. Today, we're speaking with Shalom Auslander to parse some of this out. Shalom, welcome to Vox Tablet. Thank you. You're probably going to ruffle a lot of feathers with this premise that Anne Frank faked her own death. Where on earth did this idea come from?
1: <laughs> well, uh, first of all, she didn't, you know, she didn't f- it's not like she faked it for... Money' it's like she, you know there were stories of people doing that in the camps in order to survive, so that was just sort of the the way I got past that story point but um, the, the book didn 't start with Anne Frank or even the holocaust i I actually think it's that 's just an effect of it it 's about it 's much more about the past and how it affects us generally, and what are we supposed to do with it um, but I like the idea to begin with for a few years now of a character whose flaw was hope that it wasn't drinking or fucking or he lies a lot. It's the thing that everyone says you should have, but that's actually what's ruining his life. And so that was kind of in my head for a while. And I started to write a book, uh, playing with that kind of character, um, and it somehow became this. There were there were a number of versions of this before um, that were terrible, that were like Holocaust happening in the States. And it was like, you know, they're putting you in a camp and you have to put together Ikea furniture because that was the most brutal thing they could do. <laughs> and it was just like fucking around and having a laugh. And the one thing I liked in that was this notion of when it started. It was just one thing on the first page of like a 600-page piece of crap. But I liked the one – The one paragraph in the beginning where the guy wakes up and hears something in his attic and it's his mother. And she's been hiding up there and he doesn't know how long, but she's hiding up there because she thinks a Holocaust is coming. And he doesn't, but he's like, no, you got to get out of there. And so I started over with that premise and then 300, 400 pages later, I was just, one day I was just angry at, at my publisher for something or out of something. And I was just like, oh, you know what? Fuck it. It's not his mother, it's her. It's Anne Frank. And it just started making me laugh and uh i had some fun trying to figure out first of all making her as grotesque as possible because it was clear to me that right away it wasn't about her it's she represents the the knowledge that we have of history of of rwanda of the holocaust of everything it's just it's fucking awful um and what am i supposed to do with that? i have i now have two sons uh the main character has one but what do you do if you know It'd be great um, – and Beckett is is a huge influence on me. This is like what would Beckett write if he had a son? It's one thing to sort of you know, say, well, everything sucks and laugh at it. But what do you tell a seven-year-old?
0: <laughs> Let's take this notion of hope being uh, not a positive thing and have you read a little bit of the book that gets into that. And before you start, maybe you can set it up for us a little.
1: Uh, sure. Well, this is um, – at the point in the book it's early on it's after he's after kugel's discovered um or at least a crazy lady in his attic who's claiming to be Anne frank in his attic um and he is trying to figure out what to do he's come back downstairs to his bedroom his wife's asleep his son's asleep and he's trying to figure out what to do and he's recalling um his first meeting with uh professor jove who is his sort of obi-wan kenobi he's um He's not a psychiatrist. He's just a polymath from beginning to end and knows all. And he's the one who Kugel went to, started seeing about a year earlier. Uh, and he's the one who said that Kugel's main problem is hope and that if he could get past it, he'd be happier. Okay. Kugel first began seeing Professor Jove a year before, soon after Jonah's illness. Kugel was having a difficult time sleeping. The anxiety and anger that had been building within him for some time were threatening to spill over, and he was determined to do whatever was necessary to be the husband Bree deserved and the father Jonah needed. He'd seen analysts in the past, but psychiatry was too narrow a scope for him now. Professor Jove, however, was a polymath, not just a Jungian or a Freudian, not just a Kantian or a Cartesian; he had studied the ancients and the moderns, the realists and the impressionists. He had studied everyone from Aristotle to Zarathustra, from Democritus to Heraclitus, and, as he liked to say, all the itises in between. He was, in a sense, the distillation of all of Western and Eastern thought of the past 2,000 years combined. And it was Professor Jove's opinion, standing as only someone today could on the 21st century peak of all history, heir to all mankind's experience, wisdom, and knowledge, "'that the greatest source of misery in the world, "'the greatest cause of anguish and hatred and sadness and death "'was neither disease, nor race, nor religion. "'It was hope.' "'Hope?' Kugel asked. "'Pessimists,' Professor Jove replied, "'don't start wars.' "'It was hope,' according to Professor Jove, "'that was keeping Kugel up at night. "'It was hope that was making him angry. "'Give up,' read the sign on the wall behind Jove's book-covered desk. "'You'll live longer.' "'But you've been to Yale, Harvard, Cambridge,' said Kugel. "'That's how I know,' said Professor Jove. "'Kugel had waited weeks for an appointment. "'We are rational creatures,' Professor Jove explained. "'Hope is irrational. "'We thus set ourselves up for one dispiriting fall after the next. "'Anger and depression are not diseases or dysfunctions or anomalies. "'They are perfectly rational responses to the myriad avoidable disappointments "'that begin in a thoroughly irrational hope.' "'Kugel wasn't sure he understood.' Professor Jove smiled warmly. Tell me, he said, Hitler was last century's greatest what? Kugel had shrugged. Monster? Optimist, said Professor Jove. Hitler was the most unabashed, doe-eyed optimist of the last hundred years. That's why he was the biggest monster. Have you ever heard of anything as outrageously hopeful as the final solution? Not just that there could be a solution to anything, mind you, while we have yet to cure the common cold, but a final one, no less. Full of hope, the Fuhrer was. A dreamer, a romantic even, yes? If I just kill this one gas that one, everything will be okay. I tell you this with absolute certainty. Every morning, Adolf Hitler woke up, made himself a cup of coffee, and asked himself how to make the world a better place.
0: That's great. Uh, do you hold the views of Professor Jove that actually uh, you should just give up hope and things will be better?
1: It's difficult because, and this is Kugel's uh, dilemma. It's, it's. I probably there's a strong part of me that does that would just say fuck it, and I could probably get that way. But I, I have two kids, and I have to, I have to kind of find. You know, I'm not sure my sons are going to be all that happy with. I can't go on. I'll go on they i 'll go on and there 's ice cream at the end they want some some reason to keep going, so I have to find that for them but i do i i i, I it's all it 's all conflict, so there are sometimes I feel very strongly like him there are sometimes I feel very strongly like kugel's brother in law uh this uh Pincus character who's a professor as well in a in a nearby university and he has the opposite kind of view of the world that things are getting much better um and the numbers can prove it, but I don't know if that's going to make me feel any better when they're putting us in cattle cars, but that's the kind of back and forth that I go through.
0: I mean, what's ironic about Kugel is he's not actually only full of hope. He doesn't have much hope at all, but he's full of anxiety and worry. Uh, and some of that is uh, bequeathed to him, I guess, from his mother, this constant paranoia. But uh, Jove kind of makes the point that, that there's hope and worry.
1: Well, yeah, because what he's saying is it, uh, at that point in the book as well as he's saying to Kugel that the reason he can't sleep, the reason he's tossing and turning, is because he's in Job's terms, he's hooked on life. He's so has such hope for what can happen. He thinks something so there's some some great reason to stay alive that he's worried someone's going to kill him, and that the interesting thing is when. Um, uh, my, my shrink read it. <laughs> he laughed to read this because he said to a, to a large degree, what, what psychiatrists and psychologists do are, is managing your expectations, is saying, you know what, um, you're waiting for some knight to come in the door and save it. That's not going to happen. He's a pretty good guy.
0: In the book, it turns out Solomon Kogel has never read the uh, Diary of Anne Frank. Uh, have you read it or did you reread it to kind of get in the mode
1: uh, well, I had the same experience he did, which was when it was brought to me as a, as a child, I was so sick of the Holocaust already that I just didn't, there was no way I was going to read it. Um, and this it's after, you know, the ABC miniseries, seven hours of this, eight hours of that, Sorrow and the Pity. <laughs> it's like, oh, you want to read a diary of a little girl? No, I don't want to read the diary of a little girl. So um, I, it was kind of laughing at myself that I'd only really read, you know, the first, I don't know, how many days that they were in there. Um, and then, yeah, of course, I went back and for the book, read it and read all the you know updates and the excerpted parts. And I think she had a blog and she tweeted a lot. <laughs> she from, has a Tumblr. She, she, <laughs> she tweeted a lot from in there. There's not, there, no followers. Um, <laughs> yeah, there was one follower and he turned her in. So, um, but you find that it's like one of those books you're supposed to read, but most people, if they if admit it, won't have read it. Uh, oral read part of it because uh, first of all I know how it ends um, and it's heartbreaking and beautiful and uh, there's nothing about her or that that this is about. It's, it really isn't. Um, I think you're hard pressed to find anything in it that's critical.
0: It seems like you had a lot of fun writing this novel, even though I know that the process of writing can be quite fraught. Uh, But you poke the publishing industry. I mean, you make this whole point that uh, Anne Frank is working on a novel and she has to finish her novel before she can leave Kugel's. But the uh, stakes are so high because her last book sold 32 million. That's hard to match that. Uh, You know, you make digs at – uh, advertising at uh gentrification at the whole kind of industry of holocaust memorials and and uh, holocaust memoir publishing i i guess i wonder uh, about the satirical nature of the book and at what point do you uh do you find there's a topic that you don't want to kind of poke a little at
1: um I don't, I don't it doesn't work that way really it's it was just it was less about going, let's write a satire, because that's usually when it fails, and more about saying, let's take this, and uh, Milan Kundera writes about this really well, about let's go into the joke. So there's a joke, okay? Let's say it's, a guy finds Anne Frank and is his attic, even if that's not where you start, but that's the funny thing. Now, s- stop kidding, right? A guy turns into a bug, but it's dead serious after that, dead serious. Um... All of Kafka's stuff starts out as a, as a conceit and then goes dead to, like, okay, but now there's no more laughter. This is for real. Um, this guy is really getting arrested, and they're really not telling him why, and it's no fucking joke. And that's kind of, okay, so this is for real. He's got a house. He's got everything riding on this house. He has a kid who he's enamored with, a marriage that's very important to him. And there's this old, crazy, despicable, grotesque in his attic that he can't throw out and he can't throw out because she has numbers on her arms so even if she's not Anne Frank this is when it started in my head becoming real like letting him kind of work through the issues like she had numbers and so even if she's not Anne Frank he can't throw her out because she has numbers so she's a survivor and he realizes that it'd actually be easier to throw Anne Frank out than to throw out a survivor who's so fucked by the Holocaust that she thinks she's Aunt Frank and has been living in it. That's even more tragic. So now he can't throw her out, but he's got a mortgage to pay, he's got a rent, he's got a tenant who's giving him shit and wants the attic space. Just making it real. So it wasn't ever a question of what can I poke or not poke. It's just a matter of taking the joke as seriously as possible and seeing where it can go.
0: In some ways I have a lot of uh, sympathy for Kogel because he just carries the burden of history with him uh, and I guess theoretically we all have the burden of history of our own personal histories and of our people but also of all people and yet some people feel less encumbered by that history than Kugel does
1: well I don't know, I don't know if that's true I, don't, I, I kind of feel like everybody sort of carries this around to some degree and also it depends how it's presented to you um, I was very very young when they were showing me Dachau newsreel I mean, that's fu- that's fucked up, very young. History, though, generally, I mean, you look at this country even. I mean, and this is a young country, but history and the history of this country weighs heavily on it. And I remember being – actually, I was in Israel for uh, um, an article that Time magazine eventually killed. But um, And I was with this uh, Palestinian cab driver, and he took me to um, – Mount, Mount of Olives and we're overlooking it and it's nighttime and it's beautiful and Jerusalem's all lit up um, and he was telling and I remember him saying I love it here and I said so if you could leave you wouldn't move to an, uh, uh, an Arab country Or he said no 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 this is I love Israel I'm like well wh- what do you propose doing how do we fix it and he said bomb the hell out of it and I was like um the Jewish parts? <laughs> he said, no, no. no. He's laughing. He's no, just we got to get rid of. It's too much history here. It's too much history. And he said it with such sadness, and that's true. There's too much history. That you ask me why is that, that part of the world the most fucked up? It's the where the most history is, and it's a bad thing. We can't move on. We're stuck with it. And so, what do you? And what do you do? For me, the real question was, what do I do? What do I tell my kids? You have to deal with it, but I for me, the people around me dealt with it in the worst possible way. I still see that going on.
0: On your book tour, will you go to Germany?
1: Uh, It's been bought in Germany, um, and last time uh, they toured around there. Uh, You know, an interesting thing with it is I remember being in Bremen, and they picked me up and took me on a walk through the city, and on our way to a reading, and the woman who was walking with me was very proud to start pointing out, she goes, look, look at this as we're walking down the street. And on top of a bunch of the doorways is the Star of David. I'm like, what is that? Is that a memorial thing? She said, well, what it was is we, it was a big initiative that we, that we did. And basically we go around and any homes that were before World War II owned by Jews, we go and we carve a Jewish star onto it, put a tile with a Jewish star. I'm like, that's probably the dumbest fucking thing I've ever heard. And she's like, no, isn't it great? I'm like, so some guy, not a Nazi, father wasn't a Nazi, who knows who he is, bought this house. And one day he comes home from work, and there's two guys with a couple of ladders, and they're chipping away at the front of his house and putting a Star of David on it. And you think this is a good idea. <laughs> this is going to help. What is this going to help with? Well, we'll never forget. I'm like, Germany is the one country that's not letting themselves forget to the point of uh, sickness. What are you crazy? What, how do you think the guy in there feels about the Jews right now? This is so absurd. And by the way, weren't it weren't it the Nazis the ones running around putting stars of David everywhere? <laughs> it's just so. You look at it and you go, wow, it's seventy years, and that's that's where it ends up. That's so. That just tells you. And this isn't about the Holocaust or Jews or anything. This is like, we have no. We are terrible at dealing with the past. I. I, I, just, I, I just wonder, like, in, in 50 years, are, are Tutsis going to be walking around putting signs on Hutu houses? If they were, I think we'd all go, you people are fucking, you to got to move on. But we, look, we do it, and we're like, oh, this is fantastic. It's outrageous.
0: Shalom, some people, some parents really dread the moment their child asks them about how a baby gets made. I wonder what is the question you most dread your children asking you?
1: Uh, it 's not that uh, I think it's well it 's anything uh, for me it 's anything that um, is reality <laughs> you know? Any, uh, We had two dogs that died last year, and that was probably the first time that we had to answer some hard questions and um, and about why you know, n- neither me nor my wife speak with our families they're hard questions the good the good thing is that um at least in our situation my kids are a lot healthier than i am so they often have the more a better perspective (laughs) on things than i do um i was really really crushed when our dog harley died um and um you know it wasn't like it was my son helping me but there were points where he was like being the wise one um and I think, we're honestly, again, with, like, the Holocaust, if he, if he wants to know why everyone hated the Jews, um, I think I would tell him, well, everyone hates everyone, um, you know, uh, and that's the way we are. But there are better parts of us. I think I'd give him Steven Pinker's book to read before I gave him mine. <laughs> um, but it's just realizing for me that I see the world through a very dark lens for, for particular reasons, and he doesn't. And neither of the, neither of my kids will, um, hopefully. So I just don't want to give them my. I don't want. I just. I just don't want to give them my glasses to look through. Let them look through, not rosy, but clear, because <laughs> mine are tinted heavily black. <laughs> and I know that there's a reason for it. And I know that maybe it's not accurate. I hope it's not accurate, but I know what hope leads to.
0: Salam, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. Shalom Auslander's newest book is the novel Hope, a Tragedy. It's out from Riverhead. You can find more of Shalom's writing on our website, tabletmag.com. He has a regular column there. We'd love your thoughts on our podcast, as always. Send us a note to podcast at tabletmag.com or feel free to post a comment on the site itself. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm your host, Sarah Ivry. Thank you so much for listening.